This series really has come about two years ago when we were starting to wrestle with the results of a survey that we took with our church family. All around we had people take a survey online and it came back and one of the main things people in our church family asked, to do, asked us to do is to help them understand this book better. And so that's why earlier this year it's the best-selling book of all time. But it's difficult to understand. And many people pick it up and try to read it and they don't, they don't grasp it because it, it doesn't even flow in order historically. It's written, you know, structured differently than most books and so people get confused. And so we gave that time to the Old Testament and we started, you know, through the timeline, Genesis and the patriarchs and then God's creation of his people and the exodus out of Egypt and then the judges and the kings. And then you come to the time after you go through the Old Testament. And you have 400 years of silence. Then you have the New Testament written within that 100-year span. And in that 100-year span, God inspired many, many of the books in here, within this book, to be written. And in that, he says why the Old Testament was written. Romans 15, 4, God inspired this. He said everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through our endurance in life, and our time, encouragement in the scriptures, what we find here, we might have hope. That's why the Old Testament was written. And we read in the New Testament that all those in the Old Testament were looking forward to a time when their hope would be realized. When we get to the New Testament, the Gospels, the good news, we call them the good news because it is the arrival of hope in our world. And that's why I say when we look back, spiritually speaking, in the history of mankind, when we get to the Gospels, we are at the apex of human history. In creation, we started here. Then we go through a U-shaped curve, and we come to the time of Christ, and we peak spiritually, but it's not fully realized. So going forward, we will peak yet again, because the full salvation of Christ has not been realized. But we have now, we're looking into the time when hope arrived. And I was instructed to teach one part of this period of what's written in the scriptures in the gospel, something about Jesus' life and his works. And so for a number of weeks, I've been saying, Lord, I'm not sure where we'll land and looking through the Gospels, just thinking about where would be a good place to focus on since we're only giving one week to the life and works of Jesus. And all I can tell you is through that time, I just got more and more overwhelmed because there is so much in the four Gospels, so much recorded about the life of Jesus. And so I just simply started writing down observations that I had while looking through there about the life and works of Jesus. And then I thought, well, that can be my teaching. In about 25 minutes, you can get about three observations. And so I'm going to give you three observations about the life and works of Jesus and how radical his life and his works are. And then at the end, I want to tell you why I did it this way. So here's the first observation. His life did not have an ordinary beginning, nor was he an ordinary man. I'm going to turn outside the Gospels to the book of Philippians. Paul wrote the book of Philippians after the time of Christ to those believers in Philippi and to us. And his mission was the same as our mission as a church, to help people become disciples of Christ, followers of Christ. And he's, he's saying in this passage, he wants them to emulate the attitude of Christ. And so Philippians chapter two, but it tells about the, the nature, the unique nature of Jesus. 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And here we see about his nature. Who being in very nature God. An observation you're going to make in the Gospels. This is no ordinary man. He is in his very nature God. Though he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. Taking on the nature of a servant. And he was made in human likeness. Fully human. But also in nature God. He was found in appearance as a man. When we are talking about the life of Jesus, we are talking about the God-man. John says it this way. Best-selling book of all time. Very difficult to comprehend. It's kind of an oxymoron. The number one thing in our church family, help us understand the Bible. The Old Testament points to this time. The rest of the New Testament interprets this time and what Jesus said about the coming, the future. So John, in his gospel, points back and he's referencing Jesus. But he does it this way. Creation. In the beginning was the Word. Word is capitalized. As if the Word is someone. In the beginning was the Word. No ordinary man. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. How did God create the world? God said with His Word, let there be light, and there was light. What was the Word? The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with the Word as a person. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, through this person, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. John 1.14 The Word... The being, the person who has been there, who breathed everything into existence, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We call this Emmanuel at Christmas. God with us, the God-man. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No ordinary man. No ordinary beginning. How did He do it? You know, my wife and I have had two children. There's sort of a natural process to having a child. Most people who've had a child experience it this way. Uh, you and your spouse decide you want to have a child. Your wife gets pregnant. We won't go into the details. She has a child form within her womb. Then there is this process, though natural, somewhat unnatural from the fall, but she has gives birth to a child. And we experienced this twice, and it was pretty normal. And now some of it's different for everyone. One, you know, our children were rather big. Our first one was 11 pounds, 6 ounces. Our second one was 10 pounds, 10 ounces. That was a little abnormal. But that was nothing like what Mary experienced. How did God become a man? In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. Mary was alarmed. She was nervous. She was troubled. The angel said, Do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will be with child. 
She's pledged to be married. She's a virgin. The angel says, you will be with child. No ordinary beginning. Give birth to, you will give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary, rightfully so, says, How will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born... This is not normal. You following me? You can't read this and say, I get that. You can't. People have tried to describe this. I've heard different teachers try to describe this. And the most common one I hear is, it's like you're standing over, you know, some lower species like the ants. And you decide, because they get flooded all the time and they have all that labor, that they need some help. So you want to go down and help them. And so how are you going to go be be helpful to the ants? Well, maybe you could do this. Maybe you could pick out one of the female ants. They say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to climb into her womb as a baby. And then I'm just going to be born. Do you understand how ridiculous that is? That is absolutely absurd. First observation about Jesus. No ordinary man who had no ordinary start. Secondly, Ed alluded to this in the video. The Gospels don't say much more about Jesus from his birth till about the age of 30. Seems very normal. And there's not much written on it. Luke says he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, Luke 2.52. John says very little about it. We know at one point he stayed behind uh, when his parents went for the census, as Ed alluded to. And something very natural happened there. He, as a teenager, decided to spread his wings from his parents a little bit. Now, I've lived in a home with a couple teenagers. That's natural. Our teenagers have done that. They separate themselves from their parents. And he happened to stay in one town when they went back to their hometown. And and also something very natural happened. His mom became a little irritated with him. And his mom came to him and said, Don't you know what you've done to your father and I? And Jesus, appropriately, as a young man might say, Well, didn't you know where I would be? Be in my father's house. Seemed natural enough. And he was the son of a carpenter. Most likely he learned the carpenter's trade over that time. And then he gets to the age of 30, which is John chapter 2. John only gives one chapter to that first part of his life. And as Ed said, most of it then is recorded from 30 to 33. And here's what happens in John chapter 2, age 30. Jesus is invited to a wedding. He's at the wedding. His mother's there. His disciples are there. They run out of wine at the wedding. His mother comes to him and says, when the wine was gone, they have no more wine. I don't know why she didn't go to her husband. I don't know where he was. She went to her son. Jesus said back to her, Dear woman, didn't even call her mother. Why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. Insinuation here is, Don't rush me, mom. 
Probably nobody knew what he was saying, but he did. He knew that once he revealed who he really was as the God-man, the landscape was going to change. So he said, my time has not yet come. But his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six jars that were used for ceremonial washing. They were empty, so Jesus said, go fill them with water. They went and filled those six jars, brought them back, and he said, now serve some. And they took some to the master, and the master said, this is the best wine we've served yet. And not everyone knew, but those around him knew. He turned the water into wine. And John says this, this is the first of his miraculous, supernatural, beyond reason, This is the first of his miraculous signs that Jesus performed in Cana at Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Second observation about Jesus. Most of the works recorded for us that he did here in the Gospels make absolutely no sense to the rational mind. Best book ever sold. Most famous book ever sold. And at the paramount of this book, the stories that are told are nearly impossible to believe. We have this desire to believe in something beyond the natural. And we get it here. But it's hard to believe. John, I want to tell you the rest of the works recorded in John. Hard to rationally accept. Not long after he turns the water into wine, he's traveling and he becomes a little tired. He stops by a well and a Samaritan woman comes to him and she's drawing water from the well and he asks her for a drink. And they engage in a conversation and all of a sudden he starts to tell her about the fact that she's had five husbands in the past. The man she's now living with is not her husband. She's so disarmed by his supernatural insight into her life. She runs into town and tells everyone, I've met somebody, a prophet from God. Not long after that, a young servant of an official approaches him and says, my, my, my master's son is sick and he sent me to you. He thinks you could heal him. And just as the servant is asking Jesus uh, about the healing, the son is healed miraculously of his terminal disease. Then Jesus is walking along a pool, uh, the pool of Bethesda, and there's a man who's been there. Everybody around it knew he'd been there 38 years as an invalid. Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well. He made some excuses. And Jesus supernaturally said to him, take up your mat and walk. And all of a sudden, a man who hadn't walked in 38 years stands up and walks. This just doesn't make sense. He's out teaching in the desert. People are gathering around him, 5,000 men and then women and children. The disciples are getting nervous because everybody's getting hungry and you don't want a hungry crowd on your hands. And so we don't have enough to feed him, they said to Jesus. Jesus said, what do you have? The boy was coming by and he had five small loaves of bread, two fish. He said, well, let's start with that. And before you knew it, they were gathering up excess and the over 5,000 were fed. And people had to be scratching their heads. Who is this man? His disciples were out on... Sea of Galilee. Jesus wasn't with them and it was evening and all of a sudden they're looking in the distance. They become alarmed because someone's walking towards them on the water. Seriously, that's what it says. I've tried this. This does not work. I've been by a beach and I've said, faith. And then tried to walk. And I can tell you all I do is go deeper and deeper into the water. 
But the Bible says his disciples saw him walking there and he was walking on the water. you got to be crazy to believe this stuff. man who was born blind. She's walking through the city, is healed by Jesus. And he says, shh, don't tell anyone. They start to collect all the evidence to find out if it's true. And he's found guilty of being healed by Jesus. At one point, the servant comes to Jesus and says, we've been sent by your friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And your friend Lazarus is very sick and they'd like you to come. And Jesus says, okay. And he's in no hurry. He takes his time. And finally, he gets to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Lazarus has been dead for four days. And they've put him in his tomb and he's there and his body's rotting away. And Jesus, troubled in his spirit, moved in his spirit as the God-man, frustrated with death, frustrated with sin, sickness, disease. He says, roll away the stone. Story's in there. One of the sisters says, Jesus, you don't want to do that. I mean, he's been in there four days. It's going to smell. Jesus said, roll away the stone. And then he said, Lazarus. Part of his works. Lazarus, come forth. The Bible says Lazarus got up, walked out of the tomb trying to get out of his grave clothes. And Jesus said, help that man get freed up. You cannot read through the Gospels without being dumbfounded. Beyond the natural. He had a supernatural beginning. What it says about the nature of who this man was. The works that he displayed. This is no ordinary man. Then I've made this observation over the past couple of weeks. That's really been just helping me see this in a whole new way. Of all of these things that he did. Probably the most miraculous, the greatest work that he accomplished. While with us here on earth was the very unnatural act, or what we'll know of as a natural act, dying. Of all he could do, probably his greatest act was dying. His followers have celebrated his dying from that day. The tool used to kill him is the most recognized spiritual and religious symbol in the history of the world. The cross. Dying. Boy, I hope that's not my greatest act. Why would we say this? We would say this because it was in dying that Jesus dealt with humanity's greatest problem. Humanity has a lot of problems. I don't know if you'd notice that or not. We've got sickness. It's not our greatest problem. We've got disease. Not our greatest problem. We've got death. We all deal with death. 
It's not our greatest problem. We've got relational problems, marriage problems, family problems. Not our biggest problems. We've got economic problems. Anyone notice that? We've got problems of corruption in all aspects of society. Not our greatest problems. These things are mere warts on the outside of the real problem. Jesus didn't come to deal with the warts. He came to take away the whole problem. This is why I said at the beginning, why hope arrived at this time. Don't be deceived. There are all kinds of promises of hope in our world. And just as a spiritual leader in this family, I want to warn you this morning. Be very careful of placing your hope. Hope is a spiritual longing of the soul. It's fuel for the human spirit. And hope sells. It sells. And marketers know that. That's why sometimes you will watch an ad around some sort of a vehicle and it will stir in you spiritual longings. It's appealing to the spiritual in us. But it's a lie. Anyone who offers, be very leery of anyone who's stirring you spiritually and they don't mention at the center of their offer the God-man. Because if the God-man The Christ, the Messiah, is not at the center of their offer. They themselves are lying to you. Do you understand that? There is no hope for humanity outside of the gospel. And the world needs to hear this from the church. There are many deceivers among us, wooers among us. Trying to manipulate people into thinking there's hope somewhere else. There isn't. There just isn't. Because nothing else, no one else can deal with humanity's greatest problem. What is that problem? The problem came to us when Adam, who was instructed by God not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, took some, saw it was pleasing, and ate it. He turned away from God, and we call that, from the Old Testament, the fall of man, where man fell away from God into sin. Sin entered the world. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5. Sin entered the world through one man. And then death, spiritual death, separation from God, disease, sickness, physical death, trauma in relationships, all of that. Death through sin. And in this way, death came to all of us because all of us had sinned. And the wage due us for sinning is death, 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 death. And then so for thousands of years, God said, you're sinners, you're sinners. You read it through the Old Testament. What are we going to do, Lord? Bring me sacrifices. There has to be death. That's the wage of sin. And so lambs and sheep and doves and cows and everything you can think of, the shedding of blood, 
on top of the altar. God, please don't punish. Please don't punish. Save us from our sins. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Blood flowing down the hills. And then, you know what John the Baptist said? When the God-man came, he said, look, John chapter 1. The Lamb of God who deals with the world's greatest problem. His greatest act may very well have been His dying. The once and for all sacrifice for the sins of of the world, of which every other problem we experience is merely a wart on the sinfulness of humanity. But yet it's an offer. And He freely invites us to have Him deal with our sin, and not everyone responds. How did He do it? John chapter 19 says He was put on a cross. But He willingly went there, and He got thirsty. And he asked for a drink. And when he had received his drink, John 19, 30 says, Jesus said, and his words were, Tetelestai. It means, my work is done. It is finished. The sacrificial lamb of God made the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And then it says, God gave up His Spirit. How does God do that? He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. It's by His wounds we have been healed. Some might argue His resurrection was His greatest act. But I think if you study the Gospels, you'll see the miracles seem to come quite Easily to Jesus. Lazarus, come out. Maybe the resurrection wasn't that hard. But how does God die? How does He die? For us. We're going to move to celebrate this amazing work again through communion. And I don't know if you're a believer or not, and I just thought it appropriate this time to invite you, if you've never opened up your heart, we understand these claims go beyond the rational. And no one can believe this in the natural. But the Bible says God Himself, by His Spirit, is drawing people to Himself. The wind is blowing, and maybe the wind of the Spirit is opening up your spirit to believe in the work of Jesus in who Jesus was. John said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples that aren't recorded in this book. But those are written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we might have life in his name. Communion is a time when you could, even for the first time in your life, say, I believe, and take the belief of Jesus and his death and who he was into yourself in a very physical way and you could open up your heart to him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this. 
We look here this morning at the works and the life of Jesus. It's important we do it before we look at him as a teacher because the lie that we've been fed many times and many people have been deceived by is that Jesus was simply just a great moral teacher. But when we look into your word, we see, as C.S. Lewis observed, he has not left that option open to us. What is written about him, Lord, in your word is so amazing, it's so bizarre, It's so irrational. Either he and all the writers were deceived, or Lord, you sent to us our Savior. And you became flesh and did the work to bring us to yourself. Lord, help those who are having trouble believing to believe. And those of us that believe, Lord, help our unbelief and strengthen our faith as we celebrate the work that you did for us on the cross. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.